This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome everyone to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow and tonight I'm lucky enough to have convinced Margaret Light, a licensed marriage and family therapist. So she's agreed to come back on an exorbitant amount of money to discuss with us and me about the topic of shame. But before we get talking, I'd like to take a second to thank our sponsor, Napa Auto Tech Training. Are you tired of searching for trained technicians? If so, let Napa Auto Tech help you build a technician with their Build-A-Tech program, kind of like Build-A-Bear. These three-day courses cover one of four individual topics, brakes, electrical, steering and suspension, or HVAC through a combination of classroom lecture, hands-on, and utilizing training mock-ups. Visit NapaAutoTech.com. All right, welcome back on, Margaret. I'm glad you could join us. I just want to let everyone know I don't think I shamed you to be on. So I think it's something we hear more about than ever before as something to be aware of and not like, especially for parents to not shame their children or each other, I guess, if you're parents co-parenting. So how do you separate shame and guilt? I'm guessing they get used by laymen like myself interchangeably and probably in wildly incorrectly. Yeah, in everyday language, people use them interchangeably. When we think about it clinically, the easiest way to differentiate between the two is guilt is I did a bad thing, right? It's about the behavior. Shame is I'm a bad person. So it's internalized, which is shame, versus externalized, which is guilt. There's a little bit of discrepancy in the research in terms of how people define some of these terms, but as a general statement, Guilt is thought to serve a bit of a pro-social function is the language we use around it, which means it motivates people to behave in ways that lead to social acceptance. So if I behave badly, if I behave in a way that's outside of social norms, if I do something that causes harm to someone else, I feel guilt, I self-reflect on that, and then it motivates me to change my behavior or offer repair to that person or do something different. Shame, though, is internally focused, and it's a form of extreme self-consciousness that arises from really negative and self-critical thoughts or beliefs. You know, it can be something even really simple of like, hey, I made a mistake, but instead of just being able to be like, oops, I'm really sorry, it's, oh my gosh, I'm a horrible person, I can't believe I did that, I'm so stupid, there's a lot of rumination in it, there's a lot of self-blame in it. And actually, it tends to lower motivation for self-reflection and change. It tends to harm relationships. It can lead to kind of an internal collapse for people or like a shutdown or withdrawal from others. And sometimes it looks like anger. So internally, people tend to experience guilt as uncomfortable and unpleasant, which isn't great, but is tolerable Shame is temporarily or is typically experienced as intolerable and overwhelming. So when I hear that, I I mean, I got to level with you. I think about myself and I don't mean that selfishly. I mean, a while back when we were kind of talking about this and I think we were messaging, I don't think we were on the phone and I was telling you a little bit about that because part of some of the stuff that went down after my divorce that I ended up being required to, I mean, technically to sign up for anger management. I didn't even have to technically attend for 
really it was a custody thing for custody to go back to me but i went anyways i felt like i'm gonna go through with it it was with a individual therapist one-on-one what i'm hearing you say and what i was talking about in that conversation with you is i did feel a lot of shame in there i don't feel like the therapist was shaming me and i think eventually he called me out for it a little bit not you know called out is maybe a strong word to use but if you've ever been in a counseling session or a uh, session with a therapist that eventually they do they have to push you and he pushed me on that as described by him my ex would lob these grenades at me and instead of just watching the grenades go land wherever i would basically run over to where the grenade was going to land get hit And then whine, oh my God, I can't believe she did this. I can't believe she threw this grenade at me. And when he said it, not just that, there's many things in those sessions that he would say that I would be very, very upset with myself for not knowing or not figuring out until he said it. And then when he says it, it's like, oh, oh, that makes so much sense. What do you, and and yes, I was appreciative of learning, but I left a lot of times very, very disappointed in myself, very, very upset, very you're, you're such an idiot. How do you miss this? How can you, somebody says you're kind of smart and then you go and do this stupid stuff. Like it's all a lie. You're a complete moron. And a lot of it was driving home for, from the office, good 40 minute drive, just berating myself the whole, almost the whole time. But I don't know where the line splits, where I would shift or keep away from some of these really, a lot of the darker things or the more serious things like what I don't know when, if, or how I'm pulling up on the plane to uh, avoid some of the more negative aspects of that. Right. Okay. So I think that's a really good point. And there's a few things there. A, yes, totally. That sounds like shame to me. Part of what we know about shame is it comes from these negative or self-critical thoughts or beliefs. So what you're describing there is this phenomenon where you'd get this feedback from this person and then there's this automatic belief or thought there of, I should have known that. Yeah, 100%. So shame originates with these negative thoughts or beliefs and Shame doesn't differentiate between whether those thoughts or beliefs are true or accurate or not. Because that's my automatic question is, okay, so there's this belief of I should have known that, but why? Known or figured it out. Yeah, figured it out on my own. Yeah, but why? I don't know. But that's the moment right there. This will sound sarcastic. I don't mean it. It also will sound very arrogant. I don't think I mean it that way, but it's like, I believe I should have figured it out. But why? You have to give more of an answer than that, right? That's how you check negative beliefs is, yeah, but why? Because someone already taught you that. Like, why? Just this belief of, well, I should have. Yeah, through self-reflection and thinking about it and mulling it over and a sleepless night staring at the ceiling that I would have been able to derive or work my way to this same or similar conclusion. And that's why when I say that, it's almost, it feels arrogant to say. And I like I don't think that much of myself to feel like it's arrogance, although maybe it is. Well, it's not. It's not arrogance. It is a loop, though. And I actually hear this from men all the time. Well, I should have just been able to think of it. Yeah, but why? Well, because I should have. But why? Like, it's just a loop. I should have, I should have, I should have. That's not actually a reason. 
a reason is I read three books on shame or this was my 10th year in therapy or someone's told me this 15 times and I just ignored them. Okay, well, those are lists. Those are reasons. I just have this belief that I should have. My suspicion, I don't know this to be true. My suspicion, though, is that there's something there about like self-reliance or self-sufficiency or I shouldn't have to depend on people or I should be smarter than that something in that realm. I mean, this is all wildly unprepared. You have had no hint whatsoever I would bring this stuff up. And this is not trying to turn into a therapy session for Matt. I'm hoping listeners can sympathize with this and maybe not so much, you know, in a, a therapeutic or a, yeah, or a, like a therapeutic type of situation where you're, you're attending therapy or counseling, but just day to day at the shop, like, oh, I should have figured that car out. I should have found that problem. I should have been able to determine that that sensor was bad or that wire was broken or it needed this it needed that i'm such an idiot i'm such a freaking idiot and i talk that way to myself all the time too like and uh, and so i'm hoping people listening sympathize with that that you're not alone i do it if i knee jerk this is a complete knee jerk reaction if i had to think about it and this sounds like i'm totally throwing my parents under the bus and i'm not i they have given me a great great childhood but it a lot of times if i didn't do something quite right i wasn't like punished but it might be like hey come on use your head think about it use your head why did you do that come on use your head and that would be a lot of times like oh, okay even as a small child again i'm not trying to i feel bad actually talking about this because i do remember even as a small child elementary school even younger laying in bed feeling pretty crappy about i should have known that ah oh, why did I do that? I, I should have known better. Like you said, why? You're all of eight. Why? Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is actually super important and super common. Right. Everybody does the best they can in life, right? Our parents do the best they can. It's not hardly like they're not people too, right? They don't know everything either. And a lot of times shame does have some link to our history, if we can get back there and figure it out. And even when someone says to us, we'll use your head, like you should know better. That's a cognitive, we call them cognitive distortions. That's a cognitive distortion too, because it's the same question. Why should this person have known better? How would they know better? What magical thing would have happened where they would know better? Yeah. And I keep turning this back on me. I, I really just want to use it as an example with the therapy stuff. You know, when I, I kind of went in one day and plopped down on the chair and said, you know, I'm my own worst enemy. That was kind of like, yeah, I don't know if you need to see me anymore. But it was a recognition of I grew up in an environment where I did not have any of these tools to deal with what was going on. Parents had, are still married. I never really saw them argue. You know, if they did, there was an maybe an exchange of words. And then my dad would go up to the machine shed and maybe 15, 20 minutes later, my mom would walk up there and then they came back hand in hand. And that's how I thought it worked. You know, I don't know what happened up there, yelling, screaming, throwing stuff at each other. I have no idea, but they always came back together and something, you know, was improved, whatever it was, you know, dad, changed a little something, something, mom changed to something, something, both of them changed something, something, or agreed to disagree. I don't know. But that's how I thought things worked. And then I get into a relationship where that was really not how it worked. And in a situation where I, I didn't know how to respond to outright attacks and stuff like that. So I think 
that forgiveness, recognition and a little bit of forgiveness, like, dude, you're, you know, you're walking into shock and awe with a paperclip. <laughs> right. So a couple of the things we know about shame is, so shame thrives on secrecy and silence. So if we think about like, okay, so shame is essentially this narrative we have in our heads, right? The, the thoughts we think about ourselves or our internal reactions to either the things happening external to us or even internal to us. A lot of times people don't share, well, here's how I think, or here's what I think. And so that cycle just perpetuates. That's one of the benefits of therapy, which is what you're describing is if someone comes in and actually says, hey, this happened and here's everything that happened internal to me. Well, now we can actually talk about the fact that that's shame and what to do about that. But if we never share that, or if we're in an environment where it's normalized that that's how everybody talks to themselves and it doesn't flag for anybody when they hear that nobody ever challenges that and says like hey that doesn't actually make sense one of the things we know kind of clinically with shame and i mean we work with shame all the time even just saying it out loud serves to take some of the teeth out of it right there's this idea of name it to tame it even just naming an emotion or an experience actually helps our brain start to regulate that emotion and experience it's not going to solve it but we at least know what it is now instead of just being the thing we either do or can't control or are overwhelmed by. And there's a piece of self-compassion there, which is one of our big antidotes to shame, which is creating some understanding and context for, okay, I see my reaction here and now I can understand why I reacted that way instead of just, I'm an idiot, I'm so stupid, I shouldn't have done that. So I had no skills. Well, that actually makes a lot of sense then. And that's not a personal failing. That's just a lack of skills. And that's actually easily remedied. In retrospect, or a set of skills I'm glad I didn't have because <laughs> what I would have had to experience to get them. Yeah, I, I was okay not experiencing any of that. I guess what about when we feel like we do have the tools? We have attended training. We have been doing this for a few years, many years, whatever that means, that we have some experience. And then, you know, whatever problem, we overlooked something, we didn't follow our process the way we normally would. Maybe not even just an error on our part, maybe just it's a tough freaking problem. And yet I misdiagnosed it. It took me a long time to get to the problem and the problem ended up not being terrifically difficult or way out there. You know, I think everybody forgives themselves for these just one one in a million problems that anybody would have struggled with or we feel like most would have struggled except maybe the elite of the elite. But the ones that we deem after we've figured it out, how do you work through that? Like when the whys do start coming and it's, well, yeah, I've got hundreds of hours of training. I've been to multiple classes that deal kind of with these systems or that. And I do have the proper equipment. And then maybe I'd spin it too, where I don't know that a therapist or would ever ask somebody, well, is it a common cause or a special cause? Was was this an error, error on your system, your process, or is it just kind of an outlier? That would be my question is now when the whys are coming and you do have something to say, and I'm not even saying that the responses are all that good of a defense, but in your mind they are. Now, how do we shift away from shame to I don't even know if you should feel guilty even. Right. Good catch. So here's the question I would ask there. Are you human? Are you allowed to make a mistake? 
Are you allowed to have an off day? This is the piece where shame, it can turn into this kind of vicious shame spiral where, okay, so you can answer the whys. Great. But if really what that does is just turn into someone creating kind of a list of justifications for why they should feel shame, well, now we're just in a shame spiral. Why should there be shame? Why should I be a terrible bad person or a terrible tech or a piece of shit or whatever the line is? Because you missed something. We all miss things. We all have off days. Like it doesn't matter who you are or how much education you have, that's going to happen. It's super black or white thinking to think, okay, well, if I go to enough training, I'm never going to make this mistake or a mistake ever again. That's just not realistic. So there has to, that's the sort of the place where there can be some practice around there's more than one type of cognitive distortion in the world. So I should is a cognitive distortion, but so is all the justifying and the black and white thinking of, well, here's a million reasons why I'm a terrible person. Well, actually, no. Can you just accept that it was like, okay, yeah. Yeah, even just stepping back and thinking purely statistically and adjusting. Like if you're new to the profession, just getting going or just getting going in this area of repair, that statistics aren't going to be you know, these outliers or whatever, maybe are more common to not don't no longer be an outlier technically, but you do have to cut yourself some slack that eventually they are going to start drop these times of not figuring it out or taking longer than it should have. Again, that can be a touchy subject. What does that even mean? You know, hindsight's 2020. Of course, now that you know what the issue is, you can draw a very straight line to point A to point B. Well, and should is a judgment. Anytime we say longer than it should have, or I should have gotten that, or you shouldn't have done that, should is a judgment every single time. And who decides? And also there's just a huge link between perfectionism and shame. This idea of I have to be perfect or do it perfect, or right, I'm not allowed to make these mistakes. Well, actually we all make mistakes. It's not a question of if you're going to, it's a question of when and how do you respond to it. And shame just isn't effective, right? If all else fails, this is sort of the argument I make to people of what we know about shame is it actually shuts down motivation to change. It doesn't help your brain retain information. So even if you kind of don't care enough about yourself to deal with shame, at the end of the day, it's not effective or efficient. It isn't going to get you where you want to go. So even that in and of itself makes it worth working on. Is there steps most of us can take to try to start avoiding that? Or is it really something that should involve a therapist? No. So that's a really good question. Everybody's going to experience moments of shame, right? We all have insecurities. We all have buttons that can be pushed. There's always going to be moments. So that in and of itself isn't abnormal. The question is, is it negatively impacting your life in some way? Is there some underlying sense of being worthless or hopeless, unlovable? There's something fundamentally wrong with me or flawed about me. Those would all be signs of what we call toxic shame. And those probably do need some more maybe intense intervention through therapy or counseling or write something depending on the issue. If it's interfering with your life, if it's debilitating, if it's chronic, things like that. If it's negatively impacting your relationships. If it's less than that, 
then there are things everybody can do. Part of that is that self-compassion, that ability to kind of contextualize, here's why I did this. Can I make sense of my choices and why they happened? There's the name it to tame it thing. Can I even recognize when I'm feeling shame? What I find is that I can see shame in somebody's body language even if they aren't recognizing that they're feeling it. So a lot of times it can be like flushing or looking away, not making eye contact. You'll kind of watch people's like shoulders come up and hunch forward. It's almost like they're getting small or the sense of like, I want to disappear. Don't look at me. Don't notice me. Like you can learn to read it on people. So even can we be aware of our bodies and how we're presenting and what we're doing? If you have to go up to the boss and say, hey, I made this mistake and you find you're not making any eye contact, that might be an indicator that something's happening. Or what are you so mad about? That's a good sign that something's happening there for you. And it's not about the anger. It's about whatever's underneath the anger. I think that's common. Oh, definitely. I think we all know texts, especially that stuff goes sideways and all of a sudden there's stuff flying, wrenches flying, slammed. You you see the anger, but I don't think anyone steps back and goes, they might be feeling some shame now. They probably don't even know that's what's happening. Yeah, I'm almost positive. In retrospect, I don't think I'd look back at that and be like, oh, wow, you have a lot of shame or had. Probably still, because I think that that's just the way I think. But yeah, to be in that moment, I don't know, let somebody kind of vent a little bit and then as a leader, kind of go over and try to smooth it over a little bit or um, assure them that it's okay, we all make mistakes or? That's a really good question. So I think it's twofold. Dealing with internal issues at the end of the day is a personal responsibility thing. And so the first step in dealing with any sort of internal emotion or feeling or personal responsibility thing is just about increasing awareness. Can I be aware of my behaviors? Can I be aware of my body? Can I be aware of how I present around other people? And can I be open to feedback from others about, hey, like you were really mad, right? The trick with shame. So I think about back when I was a kid, do you remember? I'm sure we're supposed to call them something else now, but I never remember the name. The old Chinese finger traps, those like tubes. Okay. Okay. Here's the thing, right? Remember how those worked, right? You'd stick your finger in a side and then when you pull, it would get tighter and tighter and tighter. And the way to actually get it to release was to push in and lean into it. Okay. Emotions are the same way. Shame in particular is like this. Sometimes what people think when they're trying to deal with shame is, well, I'm going to distract from it. I'm going to avoid it. I'm just not going to think that anymore. I'm just going to do something else. Actually, that doesn't help shame at all. The way we help shame is through leaning into it. Can I notice that it's happening? Can I notice my cues? Can I work with it? And sometimes what people do too is they'll seek some type of external validation of, okay, well, tell me I'm not a bad person or tell me it's okay. And even when someone offers that to us because there's so much shame in that person, they can't even truly accept it or hear it. So it can even be a nice offer but we don't actually have any control over whether that person can hear it and take it in or not. Because if they're not doing the work, we could say that every day for the next hundred days and it wouldn't matter. 
For 98 years, the Napa name has meant quality parts and service. It also reflects top quality training programs to help you build a more successful vehicle repair business. No doubt, the technician shortage is impacting everyone, but you're not facing this battle alone. Napa has the solution by making Napa AutoTech training available near you. Napa AutoTech provides automotive aftermarket technicians career development opportunities through structured, disciplined, measured, and high-quality technical instruction, no matter the technician or service advisor skill level. This instruction enhances understanding of vehicle systems, increases first-time repair capability, and overall customer satisfaction. It also prepares technicians to become ASE certified. It's a fact technicians who receive training to improve their knowledge and skills have a higher sense of job satisfaction. This reduces technician turnover and increases productivity, directly improving a shop's profitability. It is vital to the success of a shop's business that today's technicians are equipped to diagnose and repair today's complex vehicles. With our ever-changing technology, the technician's knowledge and skills need to be updated and refreshed on a regular basis. As you labor over the decision of whether to send your techs to get their skills sharpened, keep in mind, Napa AutoTech training is an investment, not an expense, and it's available to all. Much of Napa AutoTech's training is offered in more than one format to accommodate varieties of learning styles and training preferences so each person can maximize their learning. Whether you're more of a hands-on person or enjoy learning at your own pace, Napa AutoTech is here to provide you with the training you need and the format that works best for you. To learn more about what Napa AutoTech offers, contact NapaAutoTech.com. When I've worked for a shop that I made a mistake that I was already very, very hard on myself and probably shameful. And then to have the boss come over and just start piling it on made it worse. Not so much worse, like I already felt bad. Now you're making me really angry because it's like you're insulting me with this because you think I don't already know. You think I don't feel bad. And yet to be in, have the presence, and I don't think I did at that time, to go, all right, well, you need to let up on yourself a little bit and accept this as... What are they going to do? That My boss isn't a therapist. They are not trained to look at my body language and go, ooh, they're probably beating themselves up pretty hard. I'll, I'll just lay off a little bit or talk to them later. You know, I'll let them cool off or something like that. That's a lot to expect out of somebody too, who was probably frustrated as well with, depending on what happened, you know, it ended up costing them money. Well, yes, and... So you're right, right? The average boss isn't going to look at body language and read that. That's true. But I do think it asks an interesting question around what kind of environment or context are people existing in and what are the behavior norms that are accepted? If when someone makes a mistake, the accepted norm is to berate them, that's actually a shame-filled environment and maybe not a super healthy place to be. And maybe not all that uncommon, but that doesn't change the reality that it's not good for anybody. What if you berate everybody all the time? That would be a problem. <sighs> all right. I'll be better about it. It's all in good fun. <laughs> okay, but there's a difference between truly berating someone and like teasing someone. Oh, yeah. Yes, I'm teasing. That's different than berating. This is actually really complicated and really important because... There's a couple of things that happen truly when someone is berating someone. A, we tend to interact with other people the way we interact with ourselves internally. So if somebody's berating you, that's actually probably a pretty good indicator about how they talk to themselves as well. So A, it tells you something. To know. I mean, that's awesome to know. That's wow. Right. So 
there's a lot that gets said there. B, one of the other things that happens with shame is shame is directly linked to a low sense of self-worth or self-esteem, which tends to result in us accepting things that we don't deserve and that are maybe unreasonable to accept. Right. So if I don't think very highly of myself and I have a lot of shame and then somebody's berating me, I'm probably just going to allow it to happen. If I actually have some understanding of my worth and someone's berating me, I might do something to stop it. Like I might leave or walk away or be like, you know, man, this, this isn't an OK way to talk to me. So like you can be mad and we can talk about what happened. But if what you're going to do is call me names, which actually we talked about in the marriage episode, right, that's contempt yeah, I don't need to stand here and do that. I mean, here's the thing that I think about. As a therapist, I worked in an emergency department doing crisis work for years. And people would come in high or in some type of crisis or psychotic. And even in that circumstance, there was still an expectation of if what this person does is start to call me names or berate me or threaten me with physical harm, which happened, I didn't need to stand there and take it. And I didn't. So if the expectation is that someone in a crisis isn't even allowed to act that way, I'm sorry you lost some money. That sucks, but that doesn't entitle you to behave poorly. I know I keep coming back to it. I know. I don't even know if I'm sorry about it. From a managerial point of view, I feel like the initial position of management or the initial goal is to qualify the mistake. Was this a symptom of a flaw to the system in place? The, whether it's the shop operating procedures, the text choice and procedures, or is this a special cause? This is just an outlier. Like if we ask everybody involved to help try to figure out what happened, they may not be able to do so. It, too often that's skipped. It's right away like you did it. You made the mistake and now, and then, and then everything you just said, that, that was pretty awesome about the uh, how they talk to you is a lot of the way they internally talk to themselves, which is amazing because I'm pretty rough on myself, but I don't really talk to people that way. Which tells you something in and of itself. I'm a hypocrite, so. <laughs> I mean, yes, and there's probably more to that. Because even that's a sign. And people say that to me all the time. And I'll ask people that, like, well, do you talk to your friends like that? No, I would never. So why are you talking to yourself like that then? Because I'm not friends with myself. Yeah, why? He's a sarcastic jerk. (laughs) Yeah, but if you're talking to yourself like that, clearly you're not friends with yourself. (laughs) That's why I got friends. They're better friends than I am to myself. I rely on them. Yeah, the external validation thing. They'll just build you up. (laughs) Tear yourself back down. This sounds good. I go to them with the pieces and then they help me build it back up like a Lego. And I'm pretty sure that's called codependency, but I'll just let you hang out with that. We'll have a follow-up episode on codependency. Your wife should be able to help you with that. That's an addiction term. No, she's the codependent one. Just ask me. (laughs) Yeah, say says every codependent person ever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that's my kind of introduction to shame that you bring up my wife and I'm not saying that she has, she probably did have shame uh, years ago when she was kind of within the thralls of substance use disorder and and using, actively using that um, there probably was a lot of that involved. And my introduction into shame when I was trying to learn more and more about substance use disorder, because going into things, I had these notions learned in high school health class, college classes, not that I had 
college classes on substance use disorder or psychology or anything, but, you know, like workplace issues type stuff like that, they would always do uh, have a, a unit on, you know, alcoholism and addiction, stuff like that. Starting to delve more and more into it, shame came up often, whether it drive is the wrong, probably the wrong word, but help lead them to abusing substances or because they found that they felt that these substances or activities were a solution and then became addicted to them, that then there was shame because of it. And it just, I mean, opened up a lot of doors of, uh, of understanding or a better understanding. I don't want to imply I've got any of that stuff figured out. It's just so freaking nuanced, like a lot of things, but that is part of the shame spiral, right? Of, okay, so maybe we do this thing because it kind of medicates away this pain, but now there's more shame for doing the thing, which now we need more of the medication. And then, right, this is the loop that people get stuck in. The links between shame and substance use, depression, anxiety, suicide, anger are really well established. We know those are super, super linked. We know shame is a major risk factor for those things. And even when I think about, right, when we first did that suicide episode, some of the risk factors for suicide are these feelings of like being a burden to others, being hopeless, being worthless, right? My loved ones would be better off without me. Well, all of that is shame. I've never really had those thoughts, though. Not that they're doing so well with me, but I I don't remember ever feeling like that. So I know it seems like I'm twisting it, but it just seems like they lead to points of discussion that hopefully those listening can glean some information on or points of self-reflection or understanding of themselves too, that I'm not sure where I get back on the tracks or like, I I think it's better, you know, planes kind of doing a nosedive and then when do I start pulling up? I, I don't really know when and why, but medication stuff other than maybe I do it with video games. Or sarcasm. That's it. That's my defense. Maybe. And shame is a spectrum like anything else. There isn't necessarily this like one moment where we say, okay, here's where it's okay, quote unquote, and here's where it's not. It just is. And we just look at the impact and how it affects people. Like, does it bother you? Does it bother those around you? Does it negatively affect your life or your relationship or your performance? Well, If any of that's true, then it's worthy of being addressed. And I mean, this is the other thing. And I see people fall into this all the time of this idea that we're going to be able to make emotions go away. And we're not. We're never going to reach this point where we just like don't experience difficult emotions or not or feelings. It's just a question of how well developed are our capabilities for coping with those things. Do we have strategies for dealing with them? The clinical term is window of tolerance. When we have this experience, do we know what to do with it? Do we know how to manage it effectively? Do we know how to respond to it? Can we even recognize it? Do we even know it's happening? Or does it just take over and we act some type of way and then we're like, I I don't know why I did that. That's interesting to think about, right? Because you can see people taking the actively or involuntarily taking different courses of action. There's super interesting brain research out there that talks about, and this is a really simplified model of the brain, but if you make a fist, so the front part of your fist, like your fingers, that's going to be the frontal cortex. That's what's directly behind your forehead. That's the part of your brain that helps us 
make good decisions, behave the way we want to behave, plan, execute tasks, right? It's the thing that makes us human, essentially. Okay, so that's your fingers and your fist, right? If you open up the fist, your palm is going to be the mammalian portion of your brain. So that's kind of right. Think back of your head. That's the stuff we have in common with mammals. We do social bonding. We care for our young, live birth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Your thumb in this model is going to be this reptilian portion of your brain, right? So that's your brain stem. That's kind of like head going into the neck. That's all the stuff that we do without thinking. So most of the time we're breathing and we're not thinking about it. Digestion, right? We regulate temperature, all that good stuff. So with this idea of the brain, when your fist is closed, it's essentially then your brain is integrated. All three parts of your brain are working together. When we do fMRI studies, which is just imaging studies of the brain, most people have, and this research was done, I believe, on veterans, and it had to do with trauma responses. But there's a certain level of activation where the cute term we use is flip your lid, right? Where literally that front part of your brain goes offline. Something about your internal state, right? Your internal physiology. So think blood pressure, heart rate, stress hormones, all that stuff becomes so dysregulated that this part of your brain that allows you to think and plan and execute thoughtful actions literally goes offline. It's gone. And you're just reacting from this more base state of like the mammalian or reptilian reactions, right? That's where we get into fight, flight, freeze. Why this is important is with this idea of window of tolerance, which is literally this idea of we all have this window of here are the emotional states we're capable of maintaining integration through. So here are our internal states, our internal feelings or bodily responses where our brain stays integrated. We're able to stay online and we're able to act the way we want to act and say the things we want to say. If our physiology goes outside of that window, that's when we flip our lid and suddenly we're just doing stuff. It's absolutely crazy you're bringing that up because earlier I was going to ask something about reptilian brain. And if there's a strategy for us, which I don't think if you're experiencing that, it would be very, you'd have to be very, very self-aware to recognize that there then maybe a wildly incorrect term or not term, but uh, description, but try to force the blood back to the front of your brain as somebody observing that is there something we can do to help that happen like one thing i've heard about doing is saying something absurd like wildly wildly just left field pink flamingos somebody is freaking out and you just say pink flamingos and they're kind of like huh and it just again i don't know if it's physiologically correct that it forces blood back to the front but or reintegrates or brings you back online but something of that nature again i don't know if any of that's true i don't know about that the saying something wildly kind of off the wall i haven't heard that i'm going to answer that question i'm going to back up half a step first though because so you're right when somebody is completely outside of their window of tolerance it takes it does take a lot of practice to get back into the window of tolerance for folks that's true and that's where that piece of awareness comes in and is an ongoing practice the place i tell people to start though is we all have cues that we're about to go outside of that window and again that's an awareness thing right But we don't just like explode up into that most of the time. We usually have a cue that tells us 
hey, I don't like what's happening here or something's happening. And it depends on the person. But again, you might feel it in your body, right? Is there something in your stomach? Do you make a fist? Do your shoulders go to your ears? Do you feel like, do you go cold? Do you get red hot? Like there's some type of cue that's going to say to you, hey, something's happening and I'm about to lose it. And that's your moment to leave the scenario or do something else, right? That's where we talk about things like 628 breathing. So breathe in for a count of six, hold for a count of two, breathe out for a count of eight. Four, five, six of those actually will help to bring your frontal lobe back online. It's not going to cure every issue, but it will help to bring it back online. Or sometimes what I kind of tell folks to do is sometimes I think about those moments as like game day. You have to practice regulating your system before you actually need to regulate your system, just like you need to practice a skill before you perform it. So practice it on little frustrations. When your kids are taking too long in the bathroom in the morning, when somebody cuts you off, when you're stopped at a red light, when traffic sucks, whatever, whatever, regulate your system, notice your body, breathe, notice even the story you're telling yourself in that moment. Because sometimes that's what's dysregulating is we're assuming some intent on this other person's part that may or may not exist. Yep. We write that story. Yes. But we don't know. Don't know the whole story, but we made one. Correct. Exactly. Okay. So that's the personal piece. So then to go back to answer your question about can we help someone regulate who's in a dysregulated situation? The answer is yes, if that's something we choose to do. We're not obligated to do that, but if we choose to, we can. And there's a few tips. First and foremost, our brain has something called mirror neurons. Really what that means is that, and this is, I love brain research. Okay. So there's a super interesting research where When we watch somebody else have an experience, it lights up similar regions in our own brain, even though we are not having that experience. Okay, it's a social resonance circuit. So if someone is super dysregulated, one of the best things we can do is regulate ourselves. Because in that moment, what's at risk of happening is we're going to get dysregulated with them. If we can regulate through it, then their brain can mirror ours and bring it down a notch. One of the cool things as a therapist or like back when I did crisis work is, okay, because I knew this, so I'd regulate and I'd be really intentional about my breathing. I'd take long, slow breaths. And if you watch close enough, you know you've got someone when they take a deep breath with you. Yeah, almost like yawning. Yes, and it is. And yawning is actually a really good sign too. That's one of the things I watch for therapeutically when someone's dysregulated. If I can get a yawn, that's pretty good. But okay, does their breathing match yours? That's pretty good. Or even so, right, when someone's dysregulated, there's going to be a lot of energy and their voice is going to raise. Bring yours down. Can you sit back? Can you talk slower? Can you get softer? I have like my meditation voice all bust out with people like, yeah, you're just so angry right now. God damn right. I'm angry. Yeah, I can see that. This is front counter 101. It just needs to be used in more places than the front counter. Correct. Nice. Yeah, it's so easy to get amped up with others. Like when their energy level or frustration level goes up, so easy to match it or try to not just match it, but 
drawing it. Well, right. Yeah, that's the thing that happens, right? You think you're angry. Let me show you angry, which is its own little spiral. Right. <laughs> I like brain stuff, too. I just don't know enough about it, but it interests the heck out of me that, I mean, we're just kind of, well, for one, we're a bunch of really apes walking around in clothes and two, kind of these meat sacks running programs. Well, the reality is we're social creatures. Whether or not we like to tell ourselves that we like other people or need other people or not, our brains are wired to have contact with other people, which means we're going to be influenced by them and they're going to influence us. So we can either be victims to that or we can understand it and do something useful with it. So I don't know if we've talked a whole lot about guilt. You mentioned it. You said there is more toxic levels of it, but I don't know that we dove too much into it. Is there much to go? Like everything, right? There's too much of anything. So, you know, some guilt is probably a good sign of having us empathy. Well, yes, that's actually 100% true. So Guilt is linked to empathy in that really what guilt is, is it says that we have the capacity to look at something we did and how it impacted someone else. And we can put ourselves in their shoes and understand what that was like. So guilt is actually other oriented where shame is internal or self-oriented. So guilt is really helpful because not only does it help us kind of regulate our behavior, but it allows us to be socially responsible with the people, I mean, out in the world or more importantly that we care about in that we can kind of take their perspective and be like, wow, yeah, I bet that was really hurtful for you. Guilt is also action-oriented, right? This is one of the things, speaking of addiction, that's great about AA is they have that making amends step. Yes. Oh, man, 100%. That's shifting out of shame and into guilt. I can see my behavior impacted you, and now I want to make amends. This is that making a repair thing. How can I make this better for you? In a reasonable sense. I'm not going to like trample all over myself to do this or self-flagellate for the rest of forever. But some type of apology and repair is useful when we mess up. That's ownership. A lot of people, if not everyone, could stand to gain a lot by whether you have a substance use disorder or anything. Kind of working through that 12 step. Especially, especially because of that. Isn't that like, oh man, Matt, is it step nine? Where you you go and make amends and they have to be very specific. It can't be just call somebody up or write them a letter saying, I'm so sorry for being a jerk. Right. Yeah, it's a a good apology. For some reason, I thought amends was step four, but I might totally be making that up. I don't have my steps memorized. (laughs) Nine. Oh, that was good. Good job. Because I like it. I do. It resonates with me. I just tell a lot of people that I know you don't have like a problem But working through that and doing that assessment and thinking about that, it's kind of rough. But if you can reach out to people and make a very, very specific apology about something that they may not even remember, you don't even need them to say, don't worry about it. Just knowing that you know and they now know that you know, it means a lot. Well, yeah, it totally does. And... I would argue that guilt links to self-esteem in that we're able to accept the fact that we did a bad thing or we caused harm, but we're able to separate that from who we are as people and our value as people. So it's the ability to recognize it and to not feel like our sense of self or our sense of self-worth is threatened by acknowledging that. 
I am not going to fall to pieces because I messed up. I'm also not going to let someone treat me poorly because I messed up, right? I'm able to have some kind of reasonable limits or boundaries around like, yes, I hurt you. Yes, I'm making amends. Yes, I want to repair. And I'm not going to allow myself to be mistreated because of it, right? It's both and. There's a lot of nuance in that. But like exactly verbatim what you said, I did a bad thing. It's a rough thing because it implies like I knocked over a liquor store, but I made a mistake, an honest mistake. I'm not a bad person because of that. And I'm not going to stand here and let you imply that I'm a bad person because I made this honest mistake. Well, and not only that, but even if someone, let's say, does become dysregulated and let's say they don't accept my apology and say I am a bad person, well, I don't have, I don't actually have any control over them doing that or not. But I don't have to internalize that feedback. That's a hard thing to do by itself, to not internalize. Yeah, you're exactly right. Because over and over you tell people that you're kind of responsible for you. You can control you. It's really hard, if not impossible, to control what others are going to do or what they do do. So, right, you don't have to. So rules are things we set for other people. Boundaries are things we set for ourselves. This idea of, well, I'm not going to let... he. I'm not going to stand here and let you tell me I'm a bad person. Well, that's a rule. Good luck enforcing that. Because if you say that to someone, they're going to just come back with, I'm going to say whatever I want. Like, good luck. That's a rule. Good luck with that. Boundaries are, I'm not going to stand here if you scream at me. Or if you scream at me, I'm going to walk away. Because that's about me and I can enforce that. We can have this conversation when you're not calling me names. Great. So much good stuff comes out of these conversations. I got to tell you, that's pretty awesome. I mean, I'm aware of boundaries. Almost, I got to level with you, almost to a nauseating degree hearing about boundaries. It does. Sometimes I just get annoyed listening to, I won't I won't name names, not you, but certain people I know well, and they're always talking about boundaries. And after a while, I just get annoyed. Not boundaries like with us, but in what they do. And ah, man, I do. It starts to like, just uh, raise the hair on the back of my neck sometimes. But anyways, I like that. I never thought about it that way. Rules versus boundaries and boundaries are for me. Rules are for you. That's freaking awesome. That's I like that. Well, and language matters. I think sometimes folks can feel like it gets a little nitpicky in terms of like how we say things and when and why and what do they mean. But also language matters because language, what we say shapes our thoughts and it shapes our emotions and it shapes our interactions with other people. So it actually does pay to be really thoughtful about that. Yeah. And being clear on what you mean, like words getting used interchangeably that really aren't interchangeable. And then depending on the situation, maybe two people understand what they're trying to say. We look past it, but words have meanings and some words that we use interchangeably aren't like the ones that pop up in my head right off the bat is empathize and sympathize. Those get used interchangeably all the time, and but they're not. And there's so many others, so, so many others. I, I guess rules and boundaries uh, in many minds would have, hopefully until they listen to this, go, oh, they're definitely different. And it makes sense. Like, So they can start building some boundaries or developing boundaries is probably a better idea. Developing some boundaries for themselves and hopefully healthy ones. Well, right, exactly. So I think about, right, so if we're going to take this and apply it to a shop, right, with this idea of like guilt versus shame and rules and boundaries, right? Let's say you're working on a customer's car and 
whatever you do X, Y, Z thing, whatever. And then component A breaks. Okay. So maybe you feel guilty about breaking component A and maybe the way you make amends to that customer is like, Hey, we're not going to charge you for component A because that was our mistake. We messed that up. Okay, great. So there's healthy guilt. We did something wrong, but we're not bad people. And here's how we're repairing it. And we're going to acknowledge, like, I know this is really frustrating and here's what we're doing about it. If then that customer comes back and demands that XYZ also needs to be free, healthy self-esteem might say, well, actually, no, because XYZ was broken when you drove the car in here. And actually, no, that wasn't on us. It isn't going to be free. You need to pay for that. That's healthy guilt. Shame would be like, oh my gosh, you're right. We're terrible. I'm so sorry. The whole job is free. What? Why? That's a really good point. I think that happens a lot. They probably don't recognize it as shame. It's more or less fear to uh, either keep this client or avoid the one-star Google review something of that nature where a little bit of foresight would have been like you're saying that no, that's not reasonable. Well, we're going to cover a and uh, take care of you. Now if the one star review comes out, you can respond to that, explain the situation without trashing on them. But you know, we did cover, you know, this did happen. We made a mistake. We felt really bad about it. So we took care of a and some labor associated with a, but the demands for X, Y, and Z are not not reasonable. And therefore, we didn't cover that. We don't, maybe don't list off that you don't feel bad about that, but you, w- you wouldn't let me write the response. Somebody that's good with that would write a very nice response. Probably run it through chat GBT first and then, no, just kidding. But <laughs> you could, I just don't know if we should. That long-term repercussions on that. But yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I think it just gets disguised. You write your story to yourself that, hey, okay, I'm doing this for marketing. We're going to keep this client. We're going to keep them happy. We're going to avoid this one-star review. Whereas if the one-star review went up and you responded to it honestly and empathetically, that you're probably going to win a lot of work because of it. People are going to read that. And that client, you may never see them again and it probably won't hurt. A bunch of five-star clients are going to read that and go, oh, I think I just found my next shot. Well, right. I mean, what kind of clients do you want? rich. Well, don't we all? (laughs) Without putting a lot of thought of it in it, people that wish to spend some of their money maintaining and repairing the current vehicles and who want to form a relationship with the shop. And I'm using air quotes, the shop, meaning the people within the shop, whoever they are going to interact with. And probably the, should we say the identity of the shop or the personality of the shop, whatever that probably struggling for a word there to describe what the shop stands for and what it does, what what leads to that reputation of having good relationships with its clients and providing them value. That's what we want, or that's what I want. And clients who are reasonable. I mean, unreasonable people aren't any fun to deal with. Those are for shop B. <laughs> Those are for someone else. Shop B can have them. We even have shop B's cards to hand them. It's like, here you go. Sure. Mm-hmm. I really, really appreciate you coming on. I can't wait for the uh, codependency uh, episode. I like codependency almost as much as I like talking about shame. There's so many things I want to talk about that involve this stuff. Psychology, I think, does not get analyzed enough. I'm sure many techs have skipped right through this episode because they're waiting for something that's going to talk about the theory of an automobile 
or a system of an automobile or some part and they they want to know that but as members of this profession to want to better understand why things are the way they are beyond the automobile the people that are interacting in it and working within it that to me is fascinating why why we do what we do why we run the programs we run why is it so hard to rewrite those programs or modify those programs to me that is it's a fascinating subject that just keeps going and going and going. And we've only talked about little tidbits of it. Substance use disorder, addiction with social media, the fear, what we should have some fears with social media and hopefully a PTSD episode coming up and relationships. Like it's, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff that I don't think it's talked about nearly enough and an attempt to understand and having a resource like you, it's, we're just so lucky. I'm so lucky to have access to you and, probably oh hawk and a at a boy or thank you or something <laughs> that's close enough so no, just kidding oh that's that's as much thanks as exists okay oh man but yeah thank you again for coming on yeah thanks for having me this is fun thank you everyone for listening i hope you got a lot out of this i know i did thank you to nap auto tech training for sponsoring this and thank you to the aftermarket radio network for making this all possible if you have any ideas for future episodes or would like to be on the podcast please don't hesitate to reach out to me i'm pretty easy to find on social media you can also email me at mattfonzelpodcast at gmail.com and until next time everyone take care You've been listening to Matt Fonslow diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.